Let's just bow in prayer, shall we? Thank you, Lord, for what you're going to do in our hearts and lives during this time. Help us to study your word with diligence. Help us to be those that are willing to study, to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We just pray that you'll give us special liberty in your word tonight. Help us to understand the subject at hand. We'll give you the praise and glory in Christ's name. Amen. Turn now to the book of Acts, if we may. And, uh, well, I don't know whether we ought to turn to the book of Acts yet or not. Let's hold it a minute, all right? We may not even get to the book of Acts tonight. I don't know. We'll see. got a number of passages we have to look at to kind of lead up and introduce this particular aspect of our study in discipleship. Now, let me just once again say... We've studied discipleship and defined it and saw some of the demands and dividends of discipleship from the Gospels as we saw how Christ discipled men. And then we turned to the book of Acts to see how this worked out in a practical outworking of living as far as the early disciples were concerned. We've concentrated our attention primarily on those passages of Scripture that mention in the context disciples. And uh, though there are other things that we have referred to, uh, we've tried to take our main text from those passages that deal with the matter of disciples. We talked about disciples and and the Spirit of God, and disciples and soul winning, and uh, many other subjects. And tonight, we want to talk about the idea of what I always mispronounce, that of schism. Schism is the correct pronunciation. I always say schism because the Greek pronunciation is schemazo. And so you, you do pronounce, it should be an H in there. Can't even spell it right, you see. I'm really off to a good start. But it should be schism, according to the Webster's Dictionary. And uh, that just keeps our alliteration going. But uh, basically the word means to divide. Division. How did the disciples handle the matter of division. One part of the, the so- song we love to sing, Onward Christian Soldiers, says, We are not divided, all one body we, one in hope and doctrine, one in charity. Now there's a great emphasis upon the concept of unity in the Word of God. You remember, first of all, and let's turn to this, John chapter 17, Christ prayed for unity. John chapter 17 And verse 20, this was the high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ. This indeed was the Lord's prayer. The prayer recorded in the Sermon on the Mount and a couple of other places is uh, really the disciples' prayer. The Lord's prayer is in John 17. And this is a great prayer that the Lord made as our high priest, praying not only for the the, uh, believers of that time, but praying for believers of all time. It gives us a little idea of the way Jesus Christ is interceding for us at the right hand of the throne of God today. Now, notice in verse 20 it says, Neither pray I for these alone, that is, the disciples that were with him, but for them also who shall believe on me through their word. How many of us believed on Jesus Christ through their word? Sure, all of us did. All of us have believed on Jesus Christ through their word. So he's praying for us. He's praying for all true believers. Everyone who has come in simple faith to Jesus Christ through the ministry of the Spirit of God by the word of God. 
Now notice what he's praying. Purpose clause that they all may be one. What, to what degree? As thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. Why? That the world may believe that thou hast sent me. See how important it is to have unity in the body of Jesus Christ? To have true biblical doctrinal unity among those that are believers? Because the world is watching. And since the world is watching, they will know. Now, many, of, many of you have sought to witness to people in your office, and you've heard people say, oh, I don't want anything to do with the church. I don't want anything to do with Christ. Why? The church is so fragmented. Who knows who's right? Who knows what's right? And partially, unfortunately, that's true. There's so much confusion today because of a lack of unity among those that are believers in Jesus Christ. Go on. The glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect or complete or reaching a goal in one. And that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them and hast loved me. You see, the necessity of unity in the body of Jesus Christ. And Christ says, I have given them my glory so that they might be made perfect in one. So Christ prayed for this unity among those that are believers in Jesus Christ. Now the fact of this unity is stressed in a number of passages as well. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Now notice, we are moving from Christ's prayer for unity to a declaration of fact. When, Pe when Pentecost happened, when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, He accomplished something in the way of organic unity that cannot be broken. So therefore, it says in verse 4, For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office or the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another, having then gifts differing. Now you see, this, of course, would explain why there are, there are uh, within the unity of the church of Jesus Christ, why there are different approaches and different thrusts and different uh, mechanics, if you please, to the things that we do. We're not talking about a mechanical unity. You see, man has tried to make union. Scripture never teaches union. That is the joining together of all religious organizations. God speaks of true unity in Jesus Christ, but it is unity with diversity. And it's perfectly possible then for us to have ministries with different thrusts and different functions without disturbing that unity. But the unity is declared to be a fact. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 17. For we, being many, are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. And who is that bread? None other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. 
In other words, there is a, an organic, true unity among all those who have placed faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Now is Paul denying that there was a nationality called Jew and a nationality called Greek? Is Paul denying that? Of course not. Is he denying that there were some people who were slaves and some people who were free men? Of course he wasn't. Was he saying that there is no distinction between the sexes? No, he's not saying that at all. What he is saying is that no matter whether you're male or female or bond or free or Jew or Greek, you are still an integral and important part of the body, his body, that body of Jesus Christ called the church, that is, the universal church. He is declaring unity among believers. He's not telling us here that it's something we work for, strive for, or try to organize. He is simply stating a fact. We are one in Christ Jesus. All right? So Christ prayed for it. He de the scriptures declare the fact of this unity. But the fact of possible schism is made clear by Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3, where it tells us that there is something we must do on not the positional level, but on, if you please, the fellowship level. He says, and here's how you do it even, you, verse 1, you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called with all lowliness and meekness and long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. goes on to say there is one body. There are not many bodies. There is a unity. But we are, in the visible level, on the visible level, we are to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now that intimates to us the possibility of factions. And it is to be the believer's individual responsibility to seek to bring about unity. And verse 13 of that same chapter tells us this, till we all come in the unity of the faith. Now that would indicate to us that the unity that Christ has spoken of positionally is not, not yet practically realized. Because he tells us that he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, until we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto the perfect or the teleos, the complete man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, as so often is found in Scripture, there are two levels. There is the positional level, and there is the practical level. The positional level is done by Christ. The practical level is worked out by us. 
So, as we'll see Sunday morning, positionally we are saints. That's our position. A saint isn't someone who runs around with a halo over his head. A saint is a person who is set apart. He is set apart at the moment of salvation. But it is on a practical level, we are to act like saints. We are to act in accordance with what we are. Nothing will change the fact that if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you are a saint. That is your position in Christ. It is as secure as Jesus Christ himself. It is as secure as the fact of his death, burial, and resurrection. It is something wrought for you totally apart from any works. That is what you are. You are a saint. But I think that probably you can look around in this room and see a lot of people you know that don't always act like a saint. They don't always act as though they're set apart for a holy and sacred purpose. There are times that they do not act in accordance with what they are. What they are is a saint. What they act like may be something altogether different. It is something that has to be done. So therefore, in Philippians we read, work out, not work in or work for, but work out your own salvation. That is, work out what is already in. In other words, live in accordance with the freedom you have in Christ as a saved individual, as one who is in tune with Jesus Christ. Work out your own salvation. On the practical level, we have to work it out. And the same thing is true in reference to our position as far as unity is concerned. There is a unity that God has made. That unity has to be worked out in a practical level as we seek to forbear one another in love, to care for one another, and to minister to one another, and meet one another's needs, and to realize that Christians aren't perfect. They're just forgiven. And that's one of the greatest lessons you can ever learn, is that Christians this side of heaven will make mistakes, and they will blunder. But you have to deal with that matter in love and in caring for the individual. Now, sometimes it doesn't work. So the scripture even goes this far. It tells us as much as lies within you, live peaceably with all men. What the other fellow does, God will take care of that. But as far as you are concerned, you do the thing that is right. All right. Now, we also know that this practical unity is not always realized, even though the positional unity is there, by the fact that the Apostle Paul so often had to appeal for it. Look at 1 Corinthians. We'll just look at a few passages, but 1 Corinthians 1.10. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions or schism among you, but that ye be perfectly joined. Now, you know that word, K-A-T-A-R-T-I-Z-O. The word is the same word that is used in Galatians, chapter 6, verse 1. Ye that are spiritual, restore, restore such an one in a spirit of meekness. It's the same word that is used in reference to the equipping of the saints. It's the same word that is used 
numerous times in Scripture and means simply to mend. It was used to mend nets. It was used to take two bones and put them together in a medical way and put them together so that they would knit. It's the idea of putting factions back together. He says, I don't want any divisions among you, but I want you to be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. I want you to evaluate together in unity. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. By the way, 1 Corinthians, the letter just reeks with this problem of schism in that church. Most of it because of failing to deal with sin and error. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect or complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. That's quite a statement in closing to these people, isn't it? Look at all the things he said. Be perfect, that is mature. Be of good comfort, be comforted. Be of one mind, unity of mind. Live in peace, don't squabble, don't fight. The word peace, irene, means to set it one again. To take factions that are warring and bring them to a place of reconciliation. Be at peace and promise the God of love and peace shall be with you. Look at Philippians 1.27. Philippians 1.27. Only let your conduct, that is your politics, literally. That's where we get our word politics. It's the idea of, of not behavior in this case, but rather of citizenship, your lifestyle as a citizen. Let your lifestyle be as becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs. Now, what particularly is he pointing to? That ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now he implies by that 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 is not always the case in a church, even a good church like the church at Philippi. And we know that there were at least two gals that couldn't get along in that church, a gal by the name of Eudeus, a gal by the name of Syndicate. And he later on appealed to them directly. You two get your heads together and get the thing back on track. First Peter chapter 3, even Peter had a word to say about the potentiality of division, wrongful division, in the church of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8. Finally, be all of one mind, assuming that they may not be. Having compassion, the word compassion there is, is sympathes, it's the word that, that we get our word pathos from this word, but with the prefix, it means to, to have pathos with or to, to sympathize with, care for one another in that way. So be of one mind, have compassion with one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, that is to have uh, tender-heartedness toward one another, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil, or railing for railing, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you're called to this. What are you called to? You're called to render blessing when someone else curses you. Now that'll change a lot of things. That brings a lot of unity to the church of Jesus Christ. And moreover, there's a promise that ye should inherit 
a blessing. All right, now, have that in your mind as we move, move ahead. Positionally, unity is assured by our union with Christ. As surely as Jesus Christ is united with the Father, we are united with Him when we come to Him by faith. And in that way, there is a complete and total unity. It's illustrated in the third chapter of Ephesians by the fact that Jew and Gentile are made one in Jesus Christ. They're made one new man. The middle wall of partition is broken down, Paul says in that chapter. And there is no longer a division. They're no longer, though a man may be born a Jew and another born a Gentile, when they come into the family of God, they, they maintain their physical identity, but spiritually speaking, they are united on this positional level. It is something that takes place that is, it's not mechanical, it's not methodological, it's not something that you work up or work out or work in or anything else. It's something that Jesus Christ has provided for the church of Jesus Christ. And when people start talking about division in the church of Jesus Christ, i got news for you. The great divide will come when Jesus Christ comes again. And all true believers, even the ones that we can't recognize today, all true believers will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And guess what? There's a good news in this, because the Bible says we shall be changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye. And that means that there's not going to be a little corner up there for the Baptists and another little corner for the Methodists and another little corner for churches like ours that's Methobaptoprestigationalist. And, uh, you know, there's just no, there's no room at all in heaven for any division because then that which is practical will become the same as the positional. It's a time where positionally we are perfect in Christ because we are in Christ and He's perfect. That's our position, but on the practical level, we are imperfect. In that day, that which is imperfect is going to be made perfect. And we will be like Jesus Christ. And through the countless ages of eternity, we'll think like Christ, we'll act like Christ. And we will have minds that will be totally united because they'll be united around the person of Jesus Christ. There will be no division. And those that do not know Jesus Christ as Savior will be separated. Those individuals will have no unity throughout all the countless ages of eternity. There's going to be a whole bunch of the religious bunch that are involved in that great judgment. They'll stand before God at the great white throne judgment and they'll peel their case. And they'll say to God, look, I did the best I could. Sorry. My standard is a perfect standard. And therefore, only if you're in Christ can you be a part of my heaven. And they'll be cast into the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death, a place prepared for the devil and his angels. It's not where God desires to send any man because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Don't ever think that God stands on the brink of heaven just hoping not everybody believes so he can clobber some of them. God's heart is broken when a person has an opportunity to receive Christ and he turns away from him because he knows better than anyone else in all of the universe, he knows the consequences of refusing the only means of salvation. If you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ, then you're in that category. And you know, people think God is so unjust. They say, how could God ever condemn anyone to a Christless eternity. But I want to ask you a question tonight. If you were out in the bay 
ready to go down for the third time, and I threw you a life preserver, and you refused my help, if you drowned, would it be my fault? I used to do some lifeguarding. One year at camp, the ultimate crisis came where somebody swam out too far and uh, began to sink. It was my responsibility to go to them. And in their panic, they didn't want my help. They were afraid of sinking. We'd been trained exactly what to do, but it's a terrible, awful feeling to try to save someone and have them fight you. And finally, I got an anchor grip on this girl's hair. And I wouldn't let go, and I swam for shore as fast as I could. Let her struggle and pull her hair out, but I was going to get her in, one way or another. And you know, people that refuse Jesus Christ are just like that. They, some of them come to Christ, some of you came to Christ, kicking and screaming. You know, the tragedy is there are some that are successful in pulling their hair out and escaping the clutches of those trying to save them. God has given us an absolute message, a message that has no alternative. He has made that message clear. He has revealed himself in his son, Jesus Christ. And if a person sinks, it's because of their refusal. Every person that will be in hell, will be there by his choice. God has beckoned to the world, cried to the world, whosoever will may come. And yet men refuse. So don't ever think that God just stands up there and arbitrarily throws people into hell. Man makes a deliberate choice involved in that. Now, I'm not going to get into the subject. We'll get into that plenty in the book of Ephesians. I'm not going to get into the subject of election and all of that. We'll be teaching that. You see, the marvelous thing is that there's a, there's a tremendous plan. God does have a plan. God does know what's going on. He does know the end from the beginning. But you, you know, it's a marvelous thing to realize that with everything God says concerning election, he also balances it by saying, whosoever will may come. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And if you come in simple faith, you can have Jesus Christ as your Savior. So positionally, unity is assured by our union with Christ. And that comes at the point of salvation. But practically and experientially... There is a responsibility to keep unity and to guard it as something precious. Now the fact is that unity experientially in the church is in constant jeopardy. Unfortunately, feuding and fussing and fighting has become the hallmark of the professing church of Jesus Christ today. And disciples have, of Christ have been divided today into various classes with many leaders, and so very often, Jesus Christ has been ignored. You know, there's a major division. I think we should just speak concerning this just a moment. There's a major, major division in Christendom that is among those that are true believers in Jesus Christ. There are those that are spoken of as being followers of Calvin and those that are followers of Arminius. These two men were great theologians. We speak of the Calvinist 
and the Armenian. The Calvinist was a follower of John Calvin. That is, not, he may not agree with everything Calvin said, but his basic theology agrees on at least uh, six out of the seven points with Calvin. And the Armenian, they believed what Arminius taught. And, uh, of course, the major issue has to do with the issue of grace and the issue of predestination, election, and all of those great hairy subjects. And uh, if we boiled it down, basically the Calvinists believe that you are secure in your salvation, and Armenians basically have come to mean that you are not secure. And from that standpoint, we would have to be in the Calvinist camp. We believe on the basis of the fact that Jesus Christ accomplished salvation. We believe that if a person has truly been born again, that he is positionally saved forever. And no matter what his practice is, it may belie his faith in many ways, yet God remains faithful even when we're faithless. And uh, we won't go into that subject a great deal, except just to say that the security of the believer is one of the tenets of our faith. We believe that. Now, we don't believe that you can be promiscuous. We don't believe that you can get away with sin. We believe that God is a loving Father, and He will chasten His children in keeping with Hebrews chapter 12 and the teaching there. So we believe in the security of the believer. So we would have to be classified as in the Calvin camp, all right? And those that do not believe it would be over on this side. But you want to know a fact of history? Let me tell you a fact of history. Calvin and Arminius did not split up over these issues. And we could list all the points of Calvinism and all the points of Arminianism, and you would find that that was not the division between the two men. Do you know what the problem was between those two men? They both wanted to be the head of the show. That's where the problem was. Like Diotrephes in 3 John, they loved to have the preeminence. Now, as great as theologians as they were, the issue that split them was not basically doctrine. And you see the cleavage that came dividing the Christian camp in basically two camps. The cleavage that came only came because neither one of these fellows would give in to the other as far as the honor of the, the leadership was concerned. Had they done that, the doctrinal issues probably would have resolved themselves. Now, through these many centuries, there, the split has widened and widened and widened. So that now they're two distinct camps. But it happened not because of a doctrinal issue, but because two people were pig-headed. Stubborn like a couple of mules, and would not sit down and work the thing out like two Christians. Thus, a great split came to the church of Jesus Christ, a split that still is a major thing today. And with that, as the Armenian side began to develop their doctrines, they pulled in certain things, and the Calvinists pulled in certain things that have become sort of a part of the thing, and the result is that this split continues to widen rather than narrow. Now, you see, we may not be able to settle the doctrinal issue, because that's the issue now. But if we could have been back here, and Calvin and Arminius could have sat down 
and loved each other, this probably never would have happened. Now you see, you, you draw the line. And you see, it's difficult now. Because the line has been clearly drawn. The point is that Calvin was right in so many ways. And at some points, Arminius was right. It depended on their viewpoint. But now, it's become a diversion of doctrine. And there's difficulty with that. And some of you who know your Bibles and know what the Scripture teaches concerning the security of the believer would have a hard time being involved in a situation where they did not believe in that doctrine. And therefore, it's tragic. But nevertheless, the issue was not doctrine to begin with. Now there is a place, and I want you to understand this, there is a place for doctrinal schism. And I want to make that clear because we'll be talking about that. There is a place for a proper biblical division. Let's be sure, though, that that's the right stand. Let's make sure that that's what we're talking about. And that it's not a schism over, over leadership or over the place we will take or over some position that we covet or something we want to do. Those kind of things are to be worked out keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So Paul not only experienced this in churches like the church of Corinth, where they had division because of carnality, or the church of Galatia, where there was division because of Gnosticism, but he also saw the seeds of this problem in Philippi, where there were a problem with interpersonal relationships, and at Ephesus. And it's to the leaders of the church of Ephesus that Paul gives the most precise warning concerning the matter of schism in the church. He gives two things to us. He gives, number one, its cause. Secondly, its cure. Webster defines schism as division or separation specifically ecclesiastical, formal divisions or separations in the church. Now let's turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1. We want to see just a few verses to show you that unity was the hallmark of the early church. Chapter 1, verse 14. Hundred and twenty people. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brother. There was a, a unity of the body. A unity of the body, a body of people. By the way, the word there for one accord is the word homo thumos and was a political technical term to speak of party unity to speak of absolute unanimity unanimity it was this word homo thumos was used when a po political body would vote and no there would be no dissenting votes and in that upper room, because the Spirit of God had come upon them, uh, by remember Christ breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Spirit, before he left, 
temporarily filling them until the Holy Spirit would come on the day of Pentecost. There was a unity of spirit in that place so that they had a unanimity of heart and of mind. Chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And then the Spirit of God came. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. And the multitude of those that believed were of one heart and of one soul, so much so that they even were willing to divide their goods. You know that story. The fifth chapter, verse 12. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Now, I think you should notice, too, by way of introduction, in Acts chapter 14, turn to that, Acts chapter 14 and verse 4, it says, But the multitude of the city was divided. Now there's our word, S-C-H-I-Z-O. Schizo. Schizo, the idea of a split. The multitude of the city was split, divided, and part held with the Jews, and part with the apostles. Now you see, because of the fact that the gospel is indeed a sword. And we saw this passage earlier because this, of course, is where the Apostle Paul preached the gospel and it brought about that kind of division. Some of the people listening to what Paul as an apostle had to say and some of the people following the, the egging on of the Jews. Remember this, true doctrine does cause division, but it's a proper division. In other words, for us to take allegiance on the side of the revealed Word of God in opposition to those who are otherwise religious who do not believe that this is an absolute revelation from God, that division is a biblical division. There's nothing wrong with being on one side, the right side, in a case like that. These people, some of them, refuse the true gospel of Christ. There are people today that deny the virgin birth that deny the authority of the scriptures, that deny that Jesus Christ was indeed the Son of God, deny that He's coming again, they deny all those things. They have nothing in common with a true believer in Jesus Christ because we believe those things, because those things were surely preached among us. Those things were the things that are laid out and are called the faith. And around the faith, there is a great unity. There are a lot of people that are trying to bring about union today. Union. Now, there's a difference between union and unity. For instance, you take two cats, tie their tails together, throw them over a wire, and you'll have union. But you won't have unity. If you don't believe me, go home and try it. Don't you dare. You'll have the prevention for cruelty to animals on your tail if you do. But uh, you understand what I mean. And some people think that what we need today is to have a great big smorgasbord. And you lay down all of the doctrines of the faith, like nice little dishes. And you put a little Buddhism and a little meditation and a few other choice little things there. And you walk around this table and you pick up 
the ones you want and you leave the ones you don't want and you sit down and eat together and that is unity, they say. No way. That may be union, union, but it is a false union. It is not unity. And God just simply tells us, stay away from that table. Because among them are false teachers. And there may be some true believers. And there may be some true doctrines that are on that table. But you see, in order to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, I must reject the false apostles of denial who claim that he is only a man. I can't partake of both of those dishes. I can't even eat at the same table in that sense. I can't pick up, pick up my plate from here and, and just I, idly ignore the fact that there is a creeping cancer, a disease that God calls wrong in every sense of the word. Those that deny Christ, that's the spirit of Antichrist. I can't just ignore that. So therefore, what we're talking about is not union. We're talking about true unity around the things of the Word of God. Now, the Apostle Paul's ministry caused division. Acts chapter 23. Acts chapter 23, verse 7. And when he had so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. Now here was a group of Pharisees who were basic, basically the fundamentalists of Judaism. And there were the Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection of Christ. They were the liberals. That's why they were sad, you see. And they, there was the dissension that arose. Paul stood and he simply said, look, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. And I have the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And I'm called into question. He, he caused deliberately a division between these two factions of people. And let them fight among themselves. And Paul went right on preaching the gospel. Paul's ministry caused division. Christ said that there would be a time where, where there would be a house divided against itself. Mothers against children. Children against parents. Now he, didn't, he wasn't advocating being against your parents. He just simply said... That if one accepts Christ and the other doesn't, division is the result. Now, in particular, we want to examine the, vi the, the division anticipated by Paul. That there was to be division in the church. Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. The Apostle Paul is winding up his third missionary journey. He spent quite a while ministering to people and bringing a lot of the truth to their hearts. He's written already several of his letters. But now he is bound in the spirit to go to the city of Jerusalem. In the city of Jerusalem, there was great dissension that had been caused over the ministry of the Apostle Paul. A lot of the word had come back relative to the fact that Paul was preaching this strange doctrine called the way. And as a result, there, there were those that were intent upon having him in jail. Paul recognized, because he'd been told by the Lord, he recognized that indeed that would be the result of his visit. There are some people 
that stand on one side and some on the other side of this issue. Whether Paul was right in going to Jerusalem or whether he was wrong. I happen to stand on those that believe that Paul was right. I believe that the indications that he would suffer there had already been anticipated by him and he was willing to accept those. But I believe he went there very sure that this is what God wanted him to do. And indeed, his imprisonment there, his imprisonment in Caesarea, his ultimate imprisonment in Rome, sparked a tremendous ministry, and no one could ever doubt that the Apostle Paul's ministry was expanded rather than being contracted by his being captured and taken. He had tremendous ministry. He preached to more people. and reached more people, I should say, maybe not preached to more people, but he reached more people through his captivity than he had previous to his captivity. He was able to spread the gospel in the city of Rome, and from there, the gospel was sounded out throughout the whole world. He influenced many lives. He suffered shipwreck, but God protected him, and uh, protected all of those on the ship, and he had a chance to witness to them. And uh, he ultimately came to Rome, where he was imprisoned for a period of at least two years and uh, then probably was released, subsequently went to Spain and a couple of other places and then was brought back and ultimately beheaded. And so the the, uh, uh, thing that happened in Paul's suffering did not lead to his death in all likelihood at that time either. And so it was not a bad thing that Paul did. But as he was traveling, he came to Miletus. Now Miletus is a little ways from the city of Ephesus. It's about 30 miles away from the city of Ephesus. Paul could have made a diversion, but remember, he had set his mind to go straight to Jerusalem, and he wasn't even going to divert 30 miles from it. That's the kind of obedience Paul had. He wasn't even going to divert the 30 miles, but since he was going to be in Miletus, he did take time to call together the Ephesian elders. And in Miletus, he had a pastor's conference for the leaders in the church at Ephesus. Whether Timothy was with him or whether Timothy was among them at this time, uh, there's some some discrepancy. Some people think uh, that that Timothy became a part of the church at that time or shortly before and that he indeed was a part of that group. But we're not given names. We're just simply given the fact that these men were uh, leaders. Now, incidentally, I just want to show you something as long as you're turned to Acts 20. He calls them at one point, verse 17, elders. He calls them in verse 28, overseers or bishops. And in that same verse, he tells them their responsibility is to feed, which is the word poimen, which is the word for pastor. So he tells them they're elders. He tells them they are bishops. And he then tells them their responsibility is to pastor. So you put that all together and you realize that there is no such thing as a pastor who is above elders. The pastor and elders are on the same level. And that's clear from this passage of Scripture. The pastors were the elders. And they were multiple. They never were used singular. There always was a multiplicity of elders. And the function of their office was to oversee, hence the word episkopos or bishop. We get our word from the word elder here. We get our word Presbyterian. We get our word episcopalian from the word bishop or overseers. 
And uh, many, many people get confused about this. The elders spoke of the, of the office, the, the presbytery, or if you please, the uh, pres- presbyteros, and uh, the overseers was the episcopos, those looking over. That had to do with the function of the office. And the main ministry of the office was poimen, which was to feed the flock, that is, to teach them. And in the early church, there was the teaching elder, and there were those elders who did not teach. There were those elders who ruled, and the elders who ruled and taught. And it's fascinating because the elders that ruled and taught, it said that you are to give them double honorarium. And not muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. In other words, when a man taught, as well as ruled, the teaching elder, or the teaching elders, as the case may be, were paid, if you please, an honorarium. Never a salary, but an honorarium. And they were paid that honorarium to give them time to study so they could better teach. That's the whole point of the thing. There's only one reason why I don't hold a job outside. Because I have to study 50 to 60 hours a week to do what I do. And the other elders are committed to the fact that I have to have time to study. And if I'm going to take time to study, I can't very well support my family outside. So they pay me an honorarium. That's the whole point of the thing. We get the crazy notion that pastors are paid to be good and that the rest of you are good for nothing and uh, things like that, you know. We get the idea that a pastor is paid to, to visit and paid to, to, uh, to hold hands with little old ladies and, and to uh, counsel and to do a million and one other things. Guess what? It's just not true. It's not biblical. The saints do the work of the ministry. But the man that is paid double honorarium, he teaches. Now this is all from this passage of Scripture. It has nothing to do with our subject tonight. Maybe it'll cause some schism. Huh? <laughs> Don't want to do that. But nevertheless, this is the principle that you have laid down here. All right. Now, Paul is having a pastor's conference with these fellows. Oh, man, what a passage. He gave them stuff. You, if you don't, how many of you have read recently 20th chapter of Acts? Boy, what a blessing you're missing. Listen, my time's gone, so what I'm going to do, I've got two minutes. I'm going to read it to you. Then we'll pick up on it next week, and I'll show you the cause and the cure for division. You may be able to find it, but let me just start in verse 17. And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, Ye know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind, with many tears and trials which befell me in the lying weight of the Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have shown you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, two different kinds of teaching, incidentally, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, except that the Holy Spirit witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy 
and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that ye all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God shall see my face no more. Wherefore I testify unto you this day that I am pure from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. And of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Now notice, the division comes on two major points. There would be grievous wolves coming from the outside infiltrating. They would not spare the flock. That has to do with a diversion of false doctrine from unbelieving apostates. And verse 30, and also of yourselves. These are believers who are trying to get a following. Shall men arise seeking, speaking perverse things, that is, twisted things, to draw away disciples after them. Those are the two things that will cause that wrongful division in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, therefore watch and remember that for the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up, to give you an inheritance among all them who are sanctified. I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. I have shown you all things, how that so laboring you ought to support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had spoken thus, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and they all wept much and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they should see his face no more, and they accompanied him into the ship. That's a tremendous, tremendous passage of scripture. There's a lot of lessons there. We'll talk next week about the cause of schism and the cure from these false teachers who will come in among, among you. Five very clear principles that will keep the church, the local church, our church right here, or any church, from that kind of division. Great. I hope you come back next week for a little bit more. I barely got warmed up tonight. I could go another hour, but uh, don't dare because some of you have children waiting for you. So we'll call it quits for tonight. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your goodness and the provision you've made in your Son, Jesus Christ. What a tremendous passage of Scripture you've given us in the 20th chapter of the book of Acts. Some tremendous lessons as to what we ought to be as those that are servants of Jesus Christ. We pray that you will help us to understand and know the difference between that which is the breaking of true unity because of squabbles and fights of personalities and that true kind of division that must come when error is propounded. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you will help us to be very, very careful so that divisions do not arise in our midst. We pray that we will be those that will be followers of Jesus Christ as the only true teacher. We'll give you the praise and the glory for these things. In Christ's name, amen.